This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We sometimes don't know how a show is going to wind up when we start it. And you know, today's one of those shows. But at this point in time, Mr. McMillan and I have done this long enough to where we're reasonably confident it's going to turn out okay. I say this because we have a guest lined up for segment two that we may or may not land. We'll see. So why don't we start this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 24th of March. It was on March 24th in 1776 that the English horologist, that's a word you just don't hear enough of, John Harrison, who invented the first practical chronometer enabling navigators to fix longitude at sea, dies in London. Of course, a horologist is someone who studies clocks. Of course, when large numbers of ships started to sail across the oceans in the 1400s, 1500s, and 1600s, there was this problem of where to locate yourself on the Earth's surface. Latitude turned out to be easy. You could use the sun, the moon, the stars to help you with that one. But longitude, the east-west, you had to have a reference. And until uh, John Harrison came up with a watch or a clock that would be taken on board a ship, it was impossible to do that. Of course, once you could compare your local time to the time that your watch said was back in London or wherever, then, then you could do it. And this, uh, this, this changed navigation. So we all, we all actually owe a debt of gratitude to John Harrison. On this date in 1934, the Philippines won independence from the United States after nearly 50 years of American control. Five years later on this date, March 24, 1939, the English actor Basil Rathbone made his debut as Detective Sherlock Holmes at the premiere of The Hound of the Baskervilles in New York. Gotta say, Basil Rathbone was, was not a bad Sherlock Holmes, but uh, my favorite is the radio version, Sir John Gielgud. Mr. McMillan, please, please find a clip. I've worked for years to follow a thousand different threads, and every one of them has led to Moriarty. He's the Napoleon of crime, Watson, the secret organizer of almost everything evil that goes undetected in this great city of ours. There he sits, motionless, like a spider in the center of its web, a web with a thousand strands, and he controls them, every one. But slowly, very slowly, my own secret plans to expose him have borne fruit. Every day my net is drawing tighter, and he knows it, Watson. He knows the danger he's in, and that was why today he came to see me. And finally, it was on March 24th in 1989 that what was then the worst oil spill in U.S. territory began. After the supertanker Exxon Valdez, owned and operated by the Exxon Corporation, ran aground on a reef in Prince William Sound in southern Alaska. An estimated 11 million gallons of oil eventually spilled into the water. Attempts to contain the massive spill were unsuccessful, and wind and ocean currents spread the oil more than 100 miles from its source, eventually polluting more than 700 miles of coastline. Reaction, of course, from Exxon at that time was swift. They quickly hired PR firms to send guys up there with steam hoses and detergents to make it look like they were doing something. This, by all accounts, accomplished nothing meaningful except, uh, you know, some good PR. 
Investigative journalist Greg Pallast has looked into this matter extensively. We refer you refer you to his writings on the web and to our our own archives at radioparallax.com. Our quote of the day, speaking of the Philippines, comes from former premier and strongman Ferdinand Marcos, who once said, "It is easier to run a revolution than a government." And on that, we do have to agree with him. Our quip of the day comes from George Bernard Shaw. We've used it before, but by God, we're going to use it again. Said G.B. Shaw, newspapers are unable, seemingly, to discriminate between a bicycle accident and the collapse of civilization. Of course, I'd say it's a bit unfair to single out newspapers in that regard. I'd, I'd say more the media. Our joke of the day comes from uh, the classic Dave Barry calendar, which was thoughtfully donated to this program by... Elise, said Dave Barry, Does anyone know why, when we explain human sexuality to young people, we refer to it as the birds and the bees? I have never once seen a bird or a bee have sex. I don't believe that, organ-wise, birds or bees have any equipment they can have sex with. It seems to me that if we're going to use animals to explain human sexuality to youngsters, we should pick a species whose anatomy and behavior at least vaguely resembles ours. And he's got a point on that. Our stat of the day is that 64% of Americans now say the war in Afghanistan has not been worth fighting. The highest percentage yet to say so. That war, of course, began in the fall of 2001, making it, I'm certain, the longest conflict in American history. It appears to be continuing without any discernible goals, which I have to point out would make it rather hard to determine when you've achieved your ends. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Going into the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for throwing the bums out in the wake of Miami-Dade County Mayor Carlos Alvarez being tossed out of office by a stunning 88% margin. Voters were angry over property tax hikes and high city hall salaries. The mayor, who'd been re-elected in 2008, had raised property taxes for more than half of Dade County's homeowners after the recession and a wave of foreclosures. At the same time, he approved public funding of a new baseball stadium for the Florida Marlins and gave raises to some of his staff members. Attention Maloof family. On the other hand, it was a bad week last week for high expectations after 9,700 Ohio taxpayers received letters promising huge tax refunds, some up to $200 million. The Ohio Department of Taxation blamed the letters on a software glitch. And it was surely an ugly week last week for drug rehab of all sorts with the news that Charlie Sheen's live tour planned for April 2nd and 3rd in Detroit and Chicago sold out after just 18 minutes. The apparently addled actor is calling it the My Violent Torpedo of Truth slash Defeat is Not an Option tour. These quick sellouts have apparently prompted... uh, 
Sheen to consider adding to the tour. Sheen has apparently sent out tweets saying, this is where you will hear the real story from the warlock. Bring it. I dare you to keep up with me. Sorry, Charlie. These antics did prompt an unusual editorial in the Sacramento Bee, which stated that normally we address our editorials to the people of California and our neighbors here in the state capitol. This is one exception. It goes out to the rest of the country. The editorial was titled, Please Don't Blame Us for Charlie Sheen. Said the editors, We want to set the record straight. While Charlie lives in California, we share little in common with him and cannot be held accountable for his actions. They quoted him as saying, I am on a drug. It's called Charlie Sheen. It's not available because if you try it, you will die. Your face will melt off and your children will weep over your exploded body. None of the editors, this will probably guarantee his place in the Narcissism Hall of Fame. I don't know, this, this stuff all seemed a lot funnier when Hunter S. Thompson was doing it, but I guess Hunter wouldn't appear on television looking about 25 years older than his actual age due to drug abuse. So we hope uh, Mr. Sheen can get some help. All right, let's, uh, let's do a few, uh, I guess we'd call them oddball stories. How about this item from the Sacramento Bee, March 19th? Article by Tori Van Oot, talking about cockfighting. Apparently, Democratic Senator Ron Calderon of Montebello has introduced some cockfighting-related bills. And the article describes how this is apparently a real problem in some circles. The article points out that uh, officials showed up uh, at a gathering in South Sacramento to watch two roosters battle to the death in an illegal cockfight. That gathering was broken up by the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department, who arrested six people on animal cruelty charges. And apparently to demonstrate how wrong this is, the El Dorado County Animal Services euthanized all 250 birds. Now, I gotta say, cockfighting is, is, is a dreadful spectacle. We can't approve of such animal cruelty, but I do have to point out that the cocks in the fighting ring at least had a shot at survival which apparently was not an option in dealing with the El Dorado County Animal Services. article notes that cockfighting critics and law enforcement officials say the most effective action to curb cockfighting would be to make the, cr make the crime a felony offense, which is described in the article as a difficult political hurdle in an age of three-strike sentencing and prison overcrowding. And uh, I think that's about all we got to say on that topic. And I know people are probably tired of this topic, but it's one we just... Enjoy discussing. The Sacramento Kings basketball team, considered by some that which makes California, that which makes Sacramento a world-class city, well, it looks like they are moving to Anaheim. That city is considering issuing bonds for improvement of its Honda Center Arena, according to city notices. In addition, an attorney representing the Kings filed paperwork to trademark Anaheim Royals, and for good measure, that lawyer also registered Anaheim Royals of Southern California, Orange County Royals, and Los Angeles Royals. This is apparently because the National Hockey League in L.A. already has dibs on kings. This has prompted the editorial pages of the Sacramento Bee to finally, apparently, turn against the Maloofs. Editorial. Last week, asked the question, is there a reason why fans shouldn't label the Maloofs as royal sneaks? 
And here's a letter we have to quote from the Sacramento Bee. We don't, we don't know whether Rich Nichols of Orangevale is a Radio Parallax listener, but he wrote the Bee to say, tell the Maloofs I'm going to Anaheim next weekend and I have some room in my trunk. I'd be happy to help them move their stinking team out of Sacramento. You know, Rich, you're my kind of guy. We haven't talked too much about the terrible earthquake in Japan. We should say a few words about that. The New York Times noted that the exodus from Japan grew last week as foreigners sought to flee the threat of radiation from the stricken Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. 20,000 resident foreigners have indicated their intent to leave the country by requesting re-entry permits from the Tokyo Immigration Bureau. Ticket agents have said that flights out of Tokyo to South Korea and China were booking up quickly. A representative of China Southern Airlines, which flies from Tokyo to the Chinese coastal city of Dalan, said its flights were sold out until April. A listener, Gordon, forwarded us a, a letter, which was sent to the San Jose Women's Club from an American teacher in Japan, which has some, uh, some I think, interesting observations. Excerpt from that. Dear friends and family, past few days have been a valuable lesson in humanity. The Japanese are calm. They take only what they need from the stores. They listen to instructions without complaint. They do not loot. They do not complain or grumble when the train schedule unexpectedly changes. They move from place to place in quietness and respect. They cancel their festivals in observance and respect for the losses of the people up north. They are patient. The Americans here on base have been panic shopping. This correspondent apparently works at the Department of Defense School at a Navy base in, uh, in Japan. She goes on, The shelves of the commissary are almost bare. The base has run out of gasoline twice in the past five days. Yesterday, as the rest of Tokyo and Yokohama went about their business as best they could, the base went on lockdown following a radiation rumor sent via email. The schools spent yesterday afternoon keeping all students inside with the windows shut and the ventilation systems turned off. Children cried, parents panicked, and pulled their kids out of school. Some high school students, who are usually well-behaved, went all Lord of the Flies on their teachers, cursing and making vague threats. Today, half my students are not here, and my classroom windows are open. We, we received word from the base commander there are, is no more radiation than usual in the air here. Many families in a state of fear are flying back to the States later this week. The contrast between these two communities is like night and day. I'm thankful I live among the Japanese. They seem to keep things in perspective. I'm fine. I have plenty of food and water. I will not leave Japan unless it is under government orders to evacuate. We are always under the threat of earthquakes and tremors or a blackout to conserve energy. Two large quakes have occurred while I was at home sleeping. It is a frightening feeling being awoken by shaking, and the sounds of the apartment moving are very terrifying. A small tremor has occurred while I was writing this email. Tremors have happened several times since Friday. Sometimes I feel the floor is moving even when there is no tremor. Many teachers are taking this opportunity to have a kumbaya moment to discuss feelings, but I think what these kids need is a sense of normalcy. I told them we're going to resume our lessons as planned, and while I respect teachers who want to discuss the disaster, I don't think spending our time discussing and theorizing will change the outcome of what has happened or what will happen in the next few days to weeks. Students have been agreeable to my policy. They just want life to get back to normal. 
All field trips and after-school activities, including games, have been canceled until further notice. They are bummed, but they understand that gas is being rationed and should be used for needed purposes. The correspondent goes on to recommend that if people want to contribute, uh, they should do so with money. In the opinion of this correspondent, if people want to help uh, the people of Japan, they should uh, they should do it with cash. They should do it with money because the Japanese uh, usually will not accept donations of used goods because it's part of their culture to always give new items. I don't know whether that's true, but um, that that's what this person, who seems very knowledgeable, thinks. And by the way, as regards this supposed health risk from this Japanese reactor, um, there appears to be no significant health risk here in the West Coast of the United States or anywhere in the United States. I'm somewhat horrified at all the reporting of how, uh, you know, our options to go nuclear have really been dealt a blow by this catastrophe. Writing in the Washington Post, Eugene Robinson said, So much for the nuclear renaissance. Until the earthquake-triggered disaster at Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear complex, even some prominent environmentalists had begun championing nuclear power, portraying it as a means to end our dependence on foreign oil and significantly mitigate global warming all at the same time. Mr. Robinson went on to opine that even if the risk of catastrophe is tiny, the worst-case scenario is so dreadful as to be unthinkable. Rather than, rather than the answer to all our prayers, nuclear power is suddenly looking like a bargain with the devil. Yeah, I just want to point out, as we've all seen from the, the amount of uh, ash uh, collected <laughs> from burning coal and the stripping of uh, various hillsides to, to mine that coal and the conversion of large tracts of land into solar, uh, solar power generation and windmill farms. Yeah, there, there's just no, no environmental consequences to any of these types of energy sources, right? And we're going to do deep water drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, uh, 6,000 feet down on the ocean floor. I don't see how what happened in Japan is even remotely comparable to what happened with the BP oil spill. But uh, I guess that's not how it looks to some folks. I certainly wouldn't say that we are pro-nuclear on this program, but I just don't see how we're going to go into the future and be able to mitigate the CO2 emissions from the nations of the world without going nuclear. We'll return to that topic, of course, later this year. Let's see if we can't hear from America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a quick take on the new political paradigm. Us versus them. Say what you will about the Democrats, for the most part, they actually believe, deep down in their hearts, that impoverished kids enrolled in Head Start programs can contribute to society and make the world a better place to live. For all of us. And they want rich people to pay for that. Republicans think these kids should pull themselves up by their bootstraps the way they did when Daddy gave them their first oil well. These basic attitudes stem from deep-rooted philosophical differences. The liberal idea is by helping the greater good, it'll eventually come back and benefit everyone. While conservatives believe exactly the opposite, that by helping themselves, it'll eventually come back and benefit themselves. These days, you can pretty much divide Republicans into three groups. The greedy, the mean, and the stupid. They live in a black-and-white land where compromise is defeat. Of course, liberals can be distilled into three groups as well. The pompous, the weak, and the stupid. Their world is a rainbow of colors where everyone is given a big box of crayons and allowed to write on the walls to express themselves. 
Liberals aim to further the brotherhood of man, while conservatives know this mythical brotherhood is just another left-wing conspiracy trying to separate them from their money. Another thing is the two sides are playing under entirely different narratives. Liberals behave like bureaucrats at a folk fair, trying to choreograph the welcoming dance of converging cultures, while at the same time Republicans are lighting torches and running towards them with pitchforks. There's a war going on out there, but only one side seems to know it. Might take a sharp poke in the side to wake the Democrats up, but even then they'll probably be more concerned with trying to raise pitchfork safety standards. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Mr. Durst's opinion, like those of the host of this program, we hasten to point out, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California, who we feel certain contain both Republicans and Democrats. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break. We got, we got more fun to come. Woo! 